Welcome to International History Declassified, the podcast that provides an insider's view of the history of the post-war world and the historians who study it. International History Declassified is a production of the History and Public Policy Program at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Peter Beerstaker. And I'm your co-host, Keon Byrne. The Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program uses archival sources and history to improve understanding of important global dynamics, trends in international relations, and U.S. foreign policy. The program is home to the Digital Archive, a free online resource of newly declassified materials from around the world, available and accessible at www.digitalarchive.org. In our first three episodes, we'll be speaking with three historians about the Korean War, which began 70 years ago this month. Neither Pete nor I are experts on this topic, but by speaking with experts and examining their sources and methods, we'll explore the most recent research being done in the field while providing the context, significance, and current debate on events. Today, we're speaking with Sam Wells, Cold War Fellow at the Wilson Center and former director of the European Studies Program. Sam is the author of the recently published Fearing the Worst, How Korea Transformed the Cold War. Sam, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. In your new book, you discuss the significant role the Korean War played in accelerating the Cold War and shifting it from what you saw as a political economic conflict to a superpower arms race, specifically after Chinese intervention. Could you elaborate on this a little bit for us and speak about how you arrived at this thesis? Well, the United States in 1950 was in a what we would call a very complacent position. They had adopted sometime earlier, uh, in fact, by the spring of 1946, by my calculation, uh, a suspicious and resistant policy toward Soviet expansionist indications and uh, indications that they were violating parts of the Yalta Accords about free elections in parts of Eastern Europe, et cetera. Um, but spring of 1950, they didn't, they, they thought they were, uh, they had beaten back the initial Soviet push in Germany. Uh, they had uh, sort of outflanked the Berlin blockade with a massive airlift, which came at considerable expense, but uh, showed a lot of ingenuity and discipline, both from U.S. and uh, Royal Air Force, uh, British uh, uh, cargo planes flying in uh, on a tightly scheduled thing into Berlin with coal, fuel, uh, food, and everything needed to survive. And they had defeated the attempts by Soviet diplomacy to try and create a neutralist position in Germany, uh, which would have uh, prevented the creation of a federal republic and uh, ideally uh, prevented Germany from joining NATO. And the United States had beaten that back. And so they saw the possibility down the road of a possible conflict and even an armed conflict with the Soviet Union. But they thought the Soviet Union was so devastated by the war that it would take them five years before they could do anything uh, serious. Uh, They were 
heavily involved in reconstruction. And they thought also that their big insurance card was uh, a nuclear monopoly. And uh, while the Soviets had uh, exploded a device in September of 1949, they didn't have a stockpile. They had no way of delivering uh, these weapons. And uh, we thought it would take them probably 10 years to develop any uh, weapon that could be delivered against the United States. So uh, basically, the main concerns in Washington were an evolving anti-communist crusade uh, formulated initially by Senator Joseph McCarthy and uh, then jumped on uh, the bandwagon was jumped on by uh, many Republican members of Congress and by the largely Republican China lobby, all of whom wanted to uh, undercut the ability of the Truman administration to function and obviously influence the uh, 1950 congressional elections. Uh, the other concern of the Truman administration was to balance the budget and hold back inflation. And to this point, Truman had, in fact, held down defense spending and had even in the uh, 1950 defense budget refused to spend some $800 uh, million that had been put in the budget for uh, additional uh, bomber construction. So uh, he was uh, playing uh, uh, physical conservative and uh, resisting any temptations to uh, expand defense and feeling quite secure against any uh, aggressive moves that the Soviet Union might take. That's really interesting, Sam. Uh, now, you mentioned that one of the key points that built your understanding of the war's significance was the amount of resources the Soviets, Chinese, and Koreans were pouring into it. Can you speak a little bit about that and how the revelation came about? Yes. Um, and I, let me just and say a word about uh, where my views had stood on this before we got access really to the uh, Soviet records and uh, then later on quite a bit of Chinese records. Um, I had characterized pretty much as I did previously the posture of the Truman administration uh, at the invasion and then going through uh, the uh, early buildup uh, the Inchon invasion, but I thought the massive defense expenditure, which uh, takes the defense budget at one point up to $60 billion a year from what had been a base of uh, $13 billion in uh, fiscal year 1950, uh, was excessive. And uh, what changed my mind initially uh, or let's say uh, raised uh, great questions for me was seeing the exchange, the multiple exchanges between uh, Kim Il-sung and the Soviet uh, 
ambassador and political commissar in uh, Pyongyang. Uh, and Kim kept asking Stalin, he had done this personally in 1949, but he kept repeating it uh, a number of times, uh, at least a dozen, perhaps more, that we don't even know about, uh, requests for uh, armaments, supplies, uh, advisors, uh, trainers for the North Korean armed forces, uh, and Soviet support for an invasion of the South and a reunification of Korea under communism. Um, Stalin consistently had said no, and sometimes in his more brusque manner, uh, saying, you're not ready, the international situation isn't ready, uh, we're not willing to consider that. Great. Thank you, Sam. Uh, so you've spoken about miscalculations and misconceptions on both sides of the conflict. Can you tell us a little bit more about what was going through the minds of the Truman administration, especially in light of what you've written for us in your recent blog post on sources and methods titled Korea and the Fear of World War III? Well, the, you know, the, while Truman was upset at the Korean attack and had paid virtually no attention to the Korean situation, uh, Truman was the kind of uh, president who put very strong people around him and listened to them. So uh, he had, as the Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, and uh, he had some fairly good China specialists and Soviet specialists with him, George Kennan, uh, Charles Bolet, uh, Soviet specialist, and a number of fairly well-known uh, Chinese specialist as diplomats and uh, he was told when he was summoned back to the White House he had been uh, in at his home in Independence Missouri for the weekend uh, and he flew back immediately he was told that um, there was a recommendation from Atchison and the Joint Chiefs to uh, intervene and to call a meeting of the United Nations and uh, invoke uh, strong criticism of this and call on the membership of the United Nations to help uh, restore peace to the uh, Korean Peninsula and to the region. Uh, this was possible because at this point the Soviets were boycotting the Security Council and uh, over the fact that the United States was refusing to seat Communist China and give them the seat which was still held by the nationalists who had been driven out to Formosa. Uh, the <laughs> uh, Truman immediately uh, said absolutely uh, we'll agree to this thinking that uh, this would be a short uh, not very extensive war, and that uh, once the United States intervened, uh, we could probably do a combination of air and naval power and force the North Koreans to uh, give up. And well, that was obviously a 
mistaken assumption, and uh, the North Koreans uh, were continuing along fairly well, although uh, a couple of things went wrong for them too, but that's a, that's a different set of uh, miscalculations. Um, the, uh, at this point, Americans were generally upset by this Soviet invasion, and interestingly, given the somewhat uh, virulent anti-communism of the times, uh, whipped up in part and exploited by McCarthy uh, and, and the Republicans, uh, some Democrats, uh, the uh, country was very pleased to intervene. Now, in things that he said, and there's no reason to think he was speaking uh, for uh, any kind of historical legacy, uh, Truman was really a believer in the United Nations and its uh, prospects for uh, reorganizing international affairs and uh, maintaining a more peaceful international climate after the terrible destruction of World War II. And he said after the uh, couple of these meetings, he told uh, the uh, Assistant Secretary of State for uh, international organizations uh, who was the top UN uh, person there. He said after they had decided they would intervene, he said, I'm doing this for the UN. He said, I want the UN to succeed. This is the first test. He said, uh, we're, we're lucky the Russians aren't there. We can get some things done, but uh, uh, the Russians are behind this invasion. And uh, we're we're not going to let them get away with it. And so um, he uh, he proceeded to endorse the use of bombers. And when uh, that didn't have an adequate uh, result, he uh, upped the ante and uh, directed General MacArthur to collect all the forces he could of the occupation units in uh, the Japanese islands and get them over to Korea to reorganize the South Koreans. Uh, and once they got there, of course, then it became uh, a test of was the United States going to pull out because the North Koreans, while they got bogged down a bit and there was no uh, revolution of communists because uh, it, unknown and I mean, it was known in the State Department, but Truman wasn't aware of it. Uh, Syngman Rhee, the head of the South Korean government and a virulent anti-communist had purged, had either uh, put in prison or killed uh, many of the communist supporters in central South Korea uh, in an effort to essentially eliminate political opposition. And uh, he had done this with the help of some of the U.S. occupation forces and with the police force of South Korea, which we had helped recruit and train, and many of whom had worked for the Japanese as police during the long-term Japanese occupation. So uh, the United States was poorly equipped both about its detailed knowledge of what's been going on in South Korea, 
and uh, poorly prepared in terms of the ability and the equipment and the training of the forces that we sent in to make an adequate defense of Korea. So uh, problems mounted up very quickly and they had to take more drastic action. Thanks, Sam. Uh, it's great to get some insight into the thinking of these figures at the time. But moving to the documentation of the war, can you tell us how the different sources have developed over the years? And are there any particularly interesting archives that have played a particularly big role in this? Well, the obviously, what allowed us to know the details about the Stalin Kim Il-sung and Stalin Mao Zedong uh, exchanges and direct negotiations um, came initially from the uh, Russian archives, the Soviet archives, in the early 1990s and uh, when the uh, Cold War ended and the four plus one negotiations were uh, concluded in working out uh, the end of the war and the German division and occupation policies. Um, the uh, United States, well, the Soviet Union, I mean, the Russian government under Yeltsin began to open archives. Uh, for researchers, and uh, this occurred in various stages, and uh, people were let in, but uh, it was a, a bit of a chaotic, well, not a bit, it was a very chaotic time in Moscow. Uh, one of our uh, good colleagues, uh, John Lewis Gaddis, uh, along with his friend uh, William Taubman uh, came to the center and said, let's create a project to look at some of the records, which we understand from some West German and Finnish researchers are very high quality and we need to get into the archives. So we set up what became the Cold War International History Project. And uh, then we had in 1992, I think it was um, a big conference in Moscow in which we uh, everybody the Soviet, the Russian government at this point had uh, essentially very little income and uh, civil servants and the archivists and uh, people in universities were getting very minimal payments, if any payments at all. They were they were pretty desperate. So we had uh, considerable advantage when we offered to uh, pay archivists to provide some of the key records and to help write papers. And we would pay them for these papers. Uh, the deal was we would pay them for the papers if it came, if they came with the documents on which the papers were based, and we got the papers ahead of a conference that was being held in Moscow, and then we would pay them the last half of 
what we had promised, which was the munificent sum of $100 per paper, which was a lot uh, given the dollar-ruble ratio at that point. Uh, and uh, we would pay them the final half of that uh, after the conference. And we held a conference, which was uh, a very hard-working, I don't know, four days. It seemed like it went on forever uh, in pretty cold weather in Moscow. And uh, at the end of it, the <laughs> uh, archivists, we, we had a big reception, a big, big thing. And, of course, all sorts of people we had who had not been invited to the conference but who were working in the Academy of Sciences building came to this reception because food was short. And uh, the, the food, we were all just shocked because the, there was mountains of food and these tiers set up uh, in this big reception, which we were paying for. And uh, all these people just sort just came in, you know, like, I don't know what, locusts. Uh, they just devoured what was there and uh, got us and several hours were a little late getting in and um, barely had a few, you know, pieces of salmon on toast or something to eat. That was it. Uh, but then the, the directors who had organized this, the archivists, uh, who some of whom were still, you know, party uh, officials, uh, called us up to the top floor and said, now we will have our own private reception. So we got up there and, of course, some vodka toasts about good conference and this, that, and the other. And then they say, uh, the, the uh, head of the archive said, now you give back papers. And we said, oh, no. That wasn't the arrangement. No, you must give back papers. I don't have the authority to let these documents out. And the the director of our fairly new Cold War project, it then was, uh, James Hirschberg, said, uh, well, I'm afraid that's too late. Uh, I've already given a copy of all of the papers and the associated documents to the U.S. Embassy, and they're on their way back to the United States in the diplomatic bag. And there was a <laughs> a great quiet over the room, and uh, we closed up pretty quickly, and that was that. Um, that was the start of our documents. We got many others from sharing material with other researchers. Um, Colleagues from Finland uh, were extremely helpful. Uh, colleagues from Britain, Germany, uh, France also shared documents. Uh, later, a whole trove of key documents, some of which we had not seen related to the Korean War, were taken by Yeltsin when he made a state visit to South Korea and presented so they formed the start of uh, an archive in Korea. And of course, there were Korean and Chinese scholars going into these archives as well. So uh, subsequently, uh, 
we expanded our involvement to create a partnership with uh, Professor Xin Shihua and the East China Normal University, who had a top seminar on Cold War studies. And uh, Professor Shin became really one of the leading authorities in the world on uh, Russian policies for Korea, because he spent months in the archives in Moscow and collected all kinds of documents. And using these, then got access to a whole lot of things in Chinese archives that had previously been closed. As always, you can get in touch with us by emailing coldwar at wilsoncenter.org. We'd like to thank Graham Norwood for this podcast's music. You've been listening to International History Declassified, a podcast focused on history, historians, their sources, and their methods. International History Declassified is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. And for more information on a world of topics, issues, and ideas, please visit wilsoncenter.org. International History Declassified is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars.